Welcome to the Revenue Builders Podcast, a weekly show featuring B2B sales leaders and executives. Hosted by five-time CRO John McMahon and force management co-founder John Kaplan, the show goes behind the scenes with the people who have been there, done that, and seen the results. If you enjoy our content, please subscribe, rate, and review the show to help us reach more people. Revenue Builders is brought to you by Force Management. We help companies improve sales performance, executing the growth strategy at the point of sale. Find us at forcemanagement.com. Enjoy today's episode. Welcome to the Revenue Builders Podcast. I'm John McMahon, and I'm joined by my co-host, John Kaplan. Cap, how are you today? I'm doing great, buddy. Doing great. Good to see you. You're looking fantastic. Thanks, buddy. Feeling good. You too. Our special guest today, Cap, is Carl Cross. He is the Chief Revenue Officer at Alchemy. And Carl started his career at PeopleSoft, where for the younger listeners, that's equivalent to a work today's workday, where he climbed into sales leadership ranks before moving to SAP, where he spent two years as the VP of State and Local Government. After SAP, Carl joined BMC, where he's responsible for BMC's global outsourcing business, Then Carl moved to HP for two years before joining AppSense as the Senior Vice President of Worldwide Sales for four years until Toma Bravo's acquisition of AppSense. After AppSense, Carl was the Executive Vice President of Workfront for six years, remaining in his role even after Adobe's acquisition of Workfront. Today, we find Carl as a CRO at Alchemy. Carl Cross, welcome to the Revenue Builders Podcast. It's good to see you. Yeah, great, great to be here. Good to good to see two familiar faces. Looking forward to it. Great to see you, Carl. Great to see you. Great to see you, Johnny. Good to see you, bud. Hey, Carl. Let's start by giving us a like a brief explanation of what. Hopefully, I pronunciate this the right way. Alchemy. Does. Alchemy. 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 Yeah. What Alchemy does, what the product does, you know, how it brings value to your customers. Yeah, that's great. By the way, you won't be the first to muck the name up. But uh, yeah, we're a publicly traded SaaS company. Uh, you know, we provide a digital banking platform that allows financial institutions to acquire, serve, and grow their customer base. And uh, our target market's about 5,000 uh, financial institutions that span credit unions to commercial banks, regional banks. Um, the only thing excluded is the top 10 mega banks, like the Bank of America's. We don't target them. They build their own gear. And and that's really the kind of the genesis of the company is think in terms of just this kind of demographic shift the world's gone through. You've got uh, neobanks and PayPal and Apple Wallet, and you've got all these different ways that money's flowing through the economy. And it's put uh, a lot of our target market into a defensive measure where they're uh, they don't have the skills and the resources to invest in, in uh, to build their own innovative technology. And so they need companies like Alchemy to uh, to bring, you know, highly innovative, highly innovative, differentiated solutions to the marketplace. And that's really for us is is kind of our brand in the market is uh, it's been around a long time, highly regulated industry, a uh, very unsophisticated buyer. And we're kind of known as the one that has the most modern tech stack and uh, highly innovative. And so um uh, it's been a good run the last couple of years. How did how do they do that though, Carl? How does Alchemy do that? Uh, well, if you think about uh, what's like, give me a use case, like even one use case. 
well, this one, if you've got a young user base, uh, we've got a crypto offering. So if, uh, if a financial institution wants to provide a platform that allows their members or account holders uh, to trade uh, on the crypto exchange, then we deliver a solution that allows them to do that. Um, we'll do money movement like P2P, you know, real-time payments with FedNow, which is a new payment rail that's coming out the federal government's behind. So it's all around moving money in real time, right? And so uh, those are probably two of the most basics. And then it's got a heavy AI influence play around data and marketing. So if you think in terms of you as a, uh, a digital user, 75% of an individual's interaction with their financial institution is through the phone, which shouldn't be a surprise. And so mm. basically moving all the back office functions that have historically uh, sat on-prem and you're moving them to this, basically a computer in your hand. Yeah, powerful, powerful. Hey, Carl, so you've climbed the ranks of sales leadership. You've got a great track record of success. Let's share some lessons you learned along the way. So. If we go all the way back to when you were an account executive and you moved up to first line manager, is there something that sticks in your head of what you really had to learn be when you became a first line manager? Yeah, that's a good question. I, uh, I, for me, it was a pretty quick lesson, right? You learn, um, you learn pretty quickly. It's not about you anymore. Right. And, um, uh, I started my career at a company called PeopleSoft, and some of your listeners may not know who that is, but think of the legacy workday type uh, stack. It was one of the premier ERP vendors, had a lot of success as an individual contributor, always wanted to go into leadership. I wanted to build a sales career, and so I knew I was going to have to graduate up through multiple levels of leadership. And um, I got promoted, and I ended up having to lead the team that I actually reported into. So that oh, was that's a tough. That's tough when you have to do that. And uh, there was a guy named Jim Dupre that he and I started on the same day at PeopleSoft. Still talk to him to this day. He was kind of the he he was the kind of the anchor of the team. Had no desire to, to do anything but be a rep. And second quarter in the seat, uh, head of sales ran a, a promo and a spiff that had a pretty healthy bonus tied to it that was performance based. And I missed that by about a hundred grand in bookings. Mm. I, I over-rotated significantly with the team, made it all about me and my bonus. And Jim grabbed me, took me out behind the office. He said, dude, you're being a dumb-dumb. He goes, it's not about you anymore, right? And so I walked away from that going, damn, he's right. It's not about me. I'm actually, I got to lead, coach, and develop, you know, individuals. And uh, I think that's the big leap, right? I mean, first line is the hardest job in the software business. Um, you're pinched between what the CRO is pushing down, uh, you're pinched between your reps, you're pinched between the customer and the prospect. And it's somewhat of a rite of passage. You know, if you're going to build a career in this industry, you've got to, and some people love that to be their only career and, and that's admirable and honorable, uh, but it's a rite of passage uh, in this industry. Yeah. Now, how about when you went from that first line manager job to the second line manager? Hey, Johnny, let me just ask a question there that I'm dying yeah. to ask because no. most companies... Most companies do not let, uh, uh, I don't know what the, I'll just, it's not the fox in the hen house. It's the, they, they don't let people stay on the same team that they were on to lead that team. And what I found over the years, Carl, is that the, really the majority reason that happens is it's a, it's a location or somebody stays in a location or they, that's, they have leverage and they say, I want to stay and you know, the Southeast or whatever. And that's how they wind up managing. So if you were, if you were, 
your boss, what were the pros of putting somebody with the team to lead the team? And what are the cons and what advice would you give people? Because there's a lot of people that say, well, I don't want to move. So, you know, if you want to make me the leader of this team, then I'll do it. But, you know, talk about the pros and cons of that. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll start with the cons. That's an easy one, right? Because, you know, when you're, you know, you're kind of in the tornado, right? When you're an individual contributor, you know, there's a there's a collegial aspect to the team. And, you know, you're you just kind of you build this camaraderie and you know there's a lot of blame bias that happens right because you're you know for a lot of different reasons and so you kind of build build that up and so you kind of you have to extract yourself from that Uh, the pro is i think which outweighs the con is uh there's something uh uh there's unique value in understanding how people tick right so you really understand kind of their their the pattern recognition of how they behave how do they run a deal how are they going to react to conflict and so you you kind of accelerate through that right so you're not learning the personality traits of the people that you're leading and coaching and developing and um and for me that was uh you know it took me two three quarters to really get comfortable uh and then I kind of got some wind in the sails and and you know we had a pretty good run together I think the other con, though, is when you come from the same team, you're trying to show everybody why you got promoted. Yeah. And then a lot of times people try to be super salesperson. Let me show you how to sell the deals. And essentially, they try to sell the deals for the rest of the team, and it just doesn't scale. I yeah. find that the, the the people sometimes, the the reps themselves, try to take advantage and leverage you like, come on, Carl, you know, like, you know, three months ago, you weren't doing this either. And now we got to do this. So it's, 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 it's pretty <laughs> difficult. You have to, yeah, you have to contemplate it. Yeah. yeah. You're like, Hey, you were one of us one day. What happened to you? That's right. <laughs> While you're right. making us do things you didn't have to do. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> How about when you went for to second line? Um, yeah, I think the big leap there is, is, um, and you kind of touched on John, which I think is what, what you know, for me was a, was a learning. Uh, number one, you're obviously driving results through leaders, right? And there's there's something different about that, right? Um, I mean, if you think about what makes a great first line leader, I mean, there's a lot of a lot of things that make a great first line leader, but you know, they're they represent the values of the company, you know, better than anybody. Uh, they understand um the leading indicators of the business so they understand their you know all their metrics like their pipeline they understand the math equations behind that they're one of the best at selling the company's offerings right so you know if you're going to lead you got to show them that you can do it then you teach them and then they got to demonstrate that there's objective evidence that they can do it and then they're great storytellers right and so you have to think in terms of when you're leading first-line leaders you know those are the things in my mind that make great uh first-line guys right uh, now, the mistake that I see a lot of second line make is what you touched on, which is you'll have a tendency to run around them and go straight to the field like you're a first line manager and you rip the steering wheel out of their hands. And, and that that just creates, um, you know, they feel chastised. It creates a sense of animosity. And then the, the individual contributors actually see that that's happening. And so you devalue that first line leader. And so- for me, getting through that, uh, those are all learned skills. You know, it, it's um, the thing I've learned is, I mean, we've all been very successful, right? I've never moved into a role that was a step up, whether it was a first line, second line, or CRO, where I was qualified for the role. 
It's about being qualified or, or yeah, not qualified for it, but I was prepared for it. And yeah. so, you know, it's okay to be uncomfortable, right? And, and the, you know, the further you move up the ranks, the lonelier it gets at the top. And so, um, you know, not just first line to second line, but um, for me, it's, you know, you, you, second line starts to be a little bit more strategic versus tactical. They're thinking in terms of market analysis. How are they aligning the sales strategy with the business goal that they've been handed at the beginning of the year? And so you just have a broader, you know, your aperture opens up and you got a much broader view of the role. And then you got to go, uh, you got to go have a mission and a vision to where you're enabling um, the first line leaders to drive results. So yeah, I think it takes a while to your point to get there. But typically, what happens is what you first pointed out, where the poor reps are getting asked by the second line manager the same questions that they were asked by the first line manager, and there's no real quote unquote value add to the second line manager yet until they gain perspective and say what added value am I going to bring to the table in addition to what the first line manager brings? That's when the epiphany happens. Absolutely. Yeah. Hey, I got now, a question for you both. Um, the What I struggled with as I continue to move up the ladder in managing managers and managing managers, managers, um, I always kind of felt like my strength was in the field and my strength was with the troops and my strength was on deals and how do you, how do you, what advice would you give to leaders that are moving up that, that feel a very strong connection to reps? Um, Johnny, I think you talk about a lot, the higher up you go, the more you're recruiting. And so many of these people I recruited. So it's helping the managers recruit. Um, and it was always difficult for me not to, two things I'd like you to comment on. First is, how do you deal with that for yourself? Uh, and secondly, what are some signs that you're doing it like, this is a you know little outrageous, but it's happened to me before, a rep calls you and asks you for an update on the forecast, <laughs> meaning you have the, you, you went on the call, you didn't do a good job of establishing who's doing what, when, and you wound up with the task afterwards. So could you guys kind of comment on that? Like, number one, how do you fight it? And number two, what are some warning signs? Um, well, I mean, I think the first thing, you know, your leadership team, you got to, they, they've got to understand it's their responsibility to set the performance conditions for the reps. And, and, and that's a two way street, right? There's, um, you know, as a leader, your first line should wake up every day and it's their ultimate responsibility that every person on that team uh, has an equal chance of success. And there's a lot of things that we could unpack on that. Now, uh, the corollary to that is, uh, and this will be a familiar term that you guys have heard, uh, the reps have a responsibility because they got to participate in their rescue as well. And so those things, I don't know that I've ever figured out the secret sauce, how you get that just that flywheel effect going. But, you know, it's I think that's just a continual struggle all the way up is, how, you know, how do you get the leaders to understand you got to it's your responsibility to create the performance conditions and then you got to hold the team accountable to it. They got to feel like that that uh, that uh, you have their best interest as their number is your number one priority. And then they have to be willing to step up to the plate and take a swing. So, I mean, what do you think, John? I mean, you're. Yeah, I'm going to just add to what you said, Carl. I think that you actually, if you're the third line manager, you have to actually outline 
where the CRO outlined like segregation of duties between first line manager and second line manager. Otherwise, you get the second line manager doing exactly what the first line manager does. When you think about what a first line manager, especially a brand new one, is really not good at, they've never recruited before, mm-hmm. right? They've never truly analyzed the strengths and weaknesses of their reps in the sales process to understand what they're doing right and what they're doing wrong and really put their finger on like, this is what's going right or going wrong with this rep. And then they've never really trained people. So I think the the power and the value add comes in the second line manager where they, one, are responsible for helping the first line manager recruit. Two, they should be in charge of analyzing each and every sales rep for strengths and weaknesses in their skills and their knowledge and helping to train that first manager to spot that stuff. And then finally, that poor first line manager is doing all, all this stuff. You got to help them actually train the reps too. It can't just fall. All of this can't fall on the, on the backs of the first line manager. Yeah, no, without a doubt. I mean, like you really broke our business down to its most fundamental part. And and, and this is going to really make it elementary, but it's really about skills and pipeline. If you got a pipeline and you got the right skills in the organization, it's pretty hard to have a big mess, right? And, and you know, um, it's interesting, you know, as I've thought about my career, particularly as I've moved, you know, second line and beyond, you you uh, you start to understand there's just, there's not a lot of, uh, um, I'm going to be judgmental when I say this. A lot of first line managers have never had the formal training of what does it mean to be a leader, right? right. I mean, creating that platform of, you know, pipeline building, territory and account reviews, opportunity management, recruiting and, and retaining talent, forecasting, um, onboarding, and you got to go teach them, right? And, you know, what are the actions? And you almost have to lay the calendar out for them and give them the tools that empower them and then have some success measures against it. And then everyone's got to stack hands and be committed to doing that and seeing that through. And then on the skills front, you know, most organizations, if you talk to them and say, hey, look, what's your success profile for uh, or your key skills and attributes for your high performing reps? Most of them can't answer that question. And so, right. you know, the second, third line, are you willing to go invest the time, right, to go define that and, and, and do the work that looks at it from sales execution to sales knowledge to how they engage with clients if you're in a hunter-farmer model or, you know, what are the leadership attributes that we're looking for? And building those, you know, that profile so you you understand the foundational b- behaviors like, you know, having integrity, that's a no-brainer. But then what are the success behaviors from, from the execution side? And then go recruit to it. Because, you know, the biggest for me, uh, and this happened probably 10, 11 years ago, and um, the first line team, like when we would, you know, people get hired, they get fired, they get promoted, and they surprise you, right? All of those are going to happen whether you're a CRO, a third, a second line. But when that would happen, you know, the, the most leaders will look at it and just point the finger and blame bias, right? Ah, you know, that guy just couldn't cut it here. Right. They're the first line manager and you have a discussion with the first line manager that says, okay, look, this is on you and don't take this the wrong way. But there's only two things that could have happened, right? We either did not recruit to the profile Right, which is okay. We I've made bad hires. Everybody makes bad hires. Or hey, we recruited to the profile, but you did not invest the time, effort, and energy to lead, coach, and develop, and make sure that they had 
the right skills and the best opportunity to be successful. And it's only those two things. And when you get a first line leader to connect with that, then the, you know, the mind starts going, right? And then you start to think through, okay, so now I see how this happens because you can just do the math and map it out for them that says, okay, let's say that the rep carries a $2 million quota. How long does it take to recruit somebody? Six months. Okay, six months. What's the average productivity ramp? Nine to 12 months. All right, now you're a year and a half. So you're three and a half million behind already before you even have somebody show up at your, your doorstep. Yeah. If you make a bad hire or you don't lead coach and develop them properly. And you start to do the math. And you know, that was back to what I was saying about what, you know, the strongest leaders, uh, they know the math equation. But as you move up in senior leadership, it's your job. You got to go create that environment where uh, they understand it and there's crystal clear, clear clarity on it. The expectations are set. And then, you know, you just get all that out of the way and then it becomes, hey, let's go have some fun and go get after it. Yeah. But then, you know, on the recruiting part of what you said, then you're not in a hurry to make a mistake is the way that I like to think about it. They slow the process down, just like slowing down a good sales process to make sure that they get the right person and the right fit. Because let's face it, 80% of, you know, making that person successful is who you recruited. You know, you can, you can train and develop all you want and lead all you want, but if you recruited the wrong person, you know, you're still in trouble as a leader. Yes, you are. And then that's the oddest thing in this in particularly now, right? With the with the uh, great resignation and trying to find not in play players and I mean, because you can go find players, right? It's it's kind of like companies. You can got you can kind of go find companies to buy in this market, but most of them you're not gonna want to buy. It's the same thing with with reps and even first line leaders. And it's kind of you know, teaching people how to get through that opaqueness, teaching them how to interview properly. Um so that when you do make a choice, you make the right choice. So you're not, uh, you know, you're not waking up and you're chasing your sales capacity for the rest of the year. Yeah. <laughs> I really we're gonna, like We're going to get to that. I know we're going to get to that. <laughs> I really, really like this conversation because um, there's an old saying that says people don't leave companies. They leave bosses. They leave managers. Yeah. And what you guys are highlighting is, you know, to be honest with yourself, uh, you either recruited the wrong person or you didn't coach and develop them. And both of those are your problem. And um, I, I just, it's funny how quickly the worm turns when somebody goes, Oh, that person was a crap bird. Is it, you know, they were producing and then now all of a sudden they're gone. And then the stories that get created about the individual on the way out is kind of comical. Um, so I just wanted to highlight that if you're, you know, when you lose somebody, you really need to look in the mirror and and ask yourself those two questions. I either didn't yeah. recruit right or I didn't coach and develop them. Yeah, if you're gonna I hate to be a stickler, but I like to throw the I like to divide those into three. You know, where you recruited, you coach and develop, and then lead because you have yeah. to be able to lead. You have to be able to motivate people and you know find out what motivates them so that you can actually lead them the right way. Because you can try and train and develop people. But if you don't understand like what their hot buttons are and what their goals and aspirations are and motivations and fears and insecurities are, because you don't really know that person, it's really difficult to motivate them as a leader. Yeah, it's not always necessarily money. Everybody thinks the sales reps motivated by money. I had a rep, this is going back several years, and uh, of all things, we had a highly technical sale, but we had a guy that was an engineer by trade and highly educated, but he had this gregarious personality and came to me and said, look, I think I want to be a rep. 
And I'm like, man, I don't think he can do it. And so we put him through the gauntlet and we ended up hiring him. He was the number one rep two years in a row. And I remember sitting down with him and I'm like, hey, what really drives you? And he goes, it's not money. And I go, what is it? He goes, I want to be proud of the work that I do. And I want to know that my my work connects to something that we're trying to achieve here. And I'm like, man, that's fantastic. I'm glad you shared that with me. Now I know how I'm going to get you energized around, you know, the things that we're going to ask you to do. Love that. How do you guys, well, what's your comments here as you go up the ranks? Where does the responsibility of the culture come in? At what level? Who owns the culture? Well, anyway. yeah, culture is an interesting thing, right? Most companies just think it's put a few things on the wall and and that's our culture. I think, um, I don't think there's any one owner. I mean, I think ultimately, you know, the, uh, you're, I, the, the ELT owns the responsibility of creating the ceremonies in the company that establish what the culture is and you can have some guidelines on it, but and, and you got to get involvement when you're defining that. But ultimately, I think every individual in the company owns it, right? Um, that's a hard thing is, um, um, you know, defining it, number one. But then secondly, is like, how do you get people to demonstrate the values? And, um, you know, I don't know that I've been with any organization that's got that 100% right. Mm. The reason why I ask is when I see... There are reasons why people leave, and a lot of it has to do with culture. And because companies, like you said, Carl, are not clear on that, on who owns what, uh, as you said, your success profile, it should absolutely be part of the success profile is how does the individual interact in the culture. And when you put it in those kind of terms, it's like culture is very important. Um, But it's amazing how many... Johnny, as you're talking about delegating duties or what have you, like whose role is what in the culture, I think is something to to really contemplate. If not, if you're not the owner of it, what are you doing to support the culture? And how do you assess somebody, whether they are part of the culture or not part of the culture? I think that's a big part that companies get wrong, especially when the culture maybe changes over time. Well, you, yeah. can, you can help like create a culture as a sales leader, you know, if, especially if you try to create a culture of meritocracy. Yep. But when you do something like that as a leader, you got to live by it. You can't, it can't just be a bunch of words. So <laughs> once you claim like, this is my vision, this is the culture I'd like to have in the company. Now you have to live by it. And what happens in a lot of companies is to Carl's point, they put up different flyers on the or paintings or something on the walls hashtags but they don't truly live by it underneath the covers is a lot of stuff that is completely against what they just said was their culture um so what i found as a leader like you have to be really careful about what you say you're you're going to do and what culture you're going to have because now you better be ready to live by the positive and negative consequences of that culture. Oh, I, you know where that shows up, John? I couldn't agree with you more. Let's, uh, it, we've all missed quarters. I think I'm on my 109th quarter in this business. And wow. you, don't, you, don't make, you don't make the, no one, if anybody tells you to make every every quarter, then don't hire them. But when you have a miss, particularly when you get up into more senior leadership, you know, 
rally in the lead, the first line and the second line leadership that says, okay, look, we're going to wake up tomorrow. It's going to be the first day of the next quarter. How you show up in this company is going to matter. You got two choices. You can go grab a bag of hammers, start slinging them at your team, or you can lead out from the front, figure out what, do the after action review. What did we learn through that? And how is that attached to the values? And, and you know, man up to some degree for, I say that euphemistically, versus, uh, you know, walking around like somebody stole your milkshake, right? So there's all kinds of moments in truth through the life cycle of a company where you, you I agree with John, like, you know, how are you going to show up and do you live it? And, you know, particularly when it's a merit-based culture, which is, yeah. that's the great thing about sales. Like it's, it's a, there's a scoreboard every 90 days. But a lot of this goes back to your, you know, your points before is if you are a leader and you're recruiting the right people and you truly are leading them. And you're coaching and developing so that they're growing and they feel like they're growing as a human being, they're growing in their career, their skill set is increasing. You miss the quarter, they're not leaving you. But if you're only hammering them every quarter, quarter in, quarter out, what's the pipeline? What's the forecast? You're not training them. You're not developing. They don't know who they're going to be when they do what you're asking them to do two years from now. Where are they going to end up? What are they going to look like? How are they going to feel? If they don't understand that stuff and you miss the quarter and the culture gets seems to turn, see you later. I'm yeah. gone. I could yeah. find somebody that's going to go help develop me, develop my skills, my knowledge, increase my capabilities as a human being. Why am I going to stay here? You're not doing that. Every quarter is a snowflake. No two are the same. Right? Yeah. Get, it's like, Man, it's okay. We we miss, right? Let's just not make the same mistake twice. All right, let's go figure out what we're going to do differently to empower our people to not put themselves in that position. Okay, I love Carl, to ask so leaders. Sorry ahead. about that, Johnny. I'd love to. We'll just wrap this up on the culture piece. <clears throat> I love to ask leaders if they have patriots or mercenaries in their organization, and and when I explain that, because that tells me a lot about culture. What Johnny was saying is that the people leave you, they tend to be more mercenaries when there's a blip in compensation, a blip in the stock price, a blip in equity or or funding or whatever. Yeah. And those people are mercenaries. They take their guns and they, you know, they lay them down and they go somewhere else and pick up a different gun. And the patriots, I like to say, are the ones that, you know, like at the end of the quarter, they're they're breaking down furniture and, you know, melting, you know, metal to make bullets. But did you make uh, the question is, did you make them that way because of your culture and your leadership? Yes, I, I think today, I think some are Johnny, born that way. Some are mercenaries, no matter what. Some are definitely. But, you hire them. but the vast majority, you probably made them that way by the culture you created and your leadership. Well, there's an old saying, I think, that we can all abide by is that everybody loves to be led. As long as you can take me to a place I can't get to on my own. Yeah. And I really think that's a strong tenet of leadership. And I um, and I think it totally goes in hand in hand with culture. And with today's employee, hypocrisy has never been so strong on the criteria. Um, we either do what we say we're going to do and we believe that what we do matters or we don't. And because yeah. I just think that, you know, most of the most of the employees today what i what i hear a lot about is they're they're just extremely sensitive to hypocrisy and that if you're not doing what you say you're going to do or what you say you believe in you're going to have a you're going to have a team of mercenaries yeah, yeah. Well, so yeah. carl 
when you stepped into that lonely job, the CRO job, <laughs> what was the biggest lesson you had to learn there when you were a man on an island? What happened? Oh, man. That's lesson. Because uh, it always looks a lot easier from the outside. Yeah, it's um, – well, it's certainly lonely at the top. I mean, there's uh, – for for me, and it may be different for others, I think it um, – First off, it becomes all about, you know, how are you creating sustainable productivity in the organizations, right? And that's not in quarter execution. You're only going to be so good at executing in quarter. And I'm going to even submit to you on an annual basis, right? At that altitude, you know, if you're doing your job, you know your metrics, you know your cohorts, like you've got a pretty good handle of where your gaps are on making the plan. And so it's it's about how you create looking more than a, than a year out. But more tactically, I think the for for me the shift was just the alignment. I, I call it working across the seams. You know, how do you think in terms of alignment of the sales and marketing machine with the customer success machine that drives um, overall predictable revenue growth uh, in the engine? And, and a lot of that's just being an effective collaborator, communicating vertically and horizontally in the organization. And then making sure that alignment is aligned to the objectives of the company. And that, you know, we can unpack that, but that's the biggest leap because the board expects you to to, to have um, you know, you gotta you gotta be a, a you know a cognitively aware as a CRO, right? The board, you know, the, now the board can be your advocate. That's another big learning, right? You know, the board is your advocate, right? They they're they're there for a reason, not just to hire the CBO, but um the CRO is the most popular guy usually in the board meeting right and so you know starting to understand how do you operate at that level with the board how can you make them an advocate uh of yourself um and then you know um the straight dope man that's that's pretty much at that altitude like there's you're you're walking around with a peer group on the ELT and a CEO that has all everybody's seen the same movie multiple times and like if you're going to try to fake your way around that that that's that's a that's a that's not going to turn out very well for you so it's just you know being fully transparent and providing the straight dope but then you got to you know you got to be strategic right you know kind of cognitively aware and then think about how does the interlock work across all the functions of the company right it's like it, you know uh, it's interesting, John. You it's like, hey, when you stepped into that seat, like I've got second, third line guys, and everybody wants to know, hey, I want to be a CRO one day. Tell me what you know. What do I need to do to get there? And I'm like, it's not about you making your number. They're like, what do you mean? Like, it is about making my number. I go, no, that's just expected. It's it's zooming out from that. And I go, it's the stories that you can tell. Like, how do you think about? Uh, uh, integrating from the customer and the prospect in the market all the way back through sales and marketing into the product function, right? Because sales has the loudest voice in the company. And this is where you see a lot of CROs fail is those that don't understand how to pull that lever when it's necessary and when not to pull it. Because everyone in a software company is living with the sins of the last CRO that they had experience with. And more times than not, it probably wasn't real pleasant. And so for me, that was kind of that. All that's kind of bundled up in um, being effective with your peer group and um, and thinking in terms of longer terms, you know, sustainability of the business, and then uh, interlocking all of the functions. Because yeah. for me, I mean, John, you've been a multiple time CRO, and um, 
if you don't take the lead as a CRO on interlocking the functions, they're not going to do it. They're just no. not. No, and, they'll stay in their they'll stay in their bowling alley. They will. Yeah, they, and, and uh, you know what you were basically describing. I think Brian Halligan, CEO of HubSpot, who we had on the podcast, said it best. He said, "There's three types of value that an employee brings: me value." Then they can step up and bring, you know, team value or they're only focused on their team or can bring enterprise value. And that's what you're talking about, you know, peer group value as, as the, were the words you used. But you have to bring, you have to learn how it's, it's about the long-term enterprise and, and how, mu how much value you can bring to that. That's really, that's really where you have to change your perspective. So... Carl, you know, so we went through all the different ranks and we talked about, you know, leading and managing, but what did Carl have to learn about Carl? Because you've matured as a human being like tremendously, right? So when you think back, what did you have to learn about you? Oh, man. Is there I one thing that sticks out? What did you have to learn? Let me give you a little bit about my background. This will kind of set this up, right? It's first off, I'm an identical twin, uh, and my twin brother does the same thing I do. He's been a multiple time CRO. He's had multiple exits. Um, so we grew up in the industry together, but we grew up on a small town on a farm. And our dad was a green beret. And um, you, as a twin, you're competing for everything at a your early age. You're com competing academically, athletically. You're competing for your parents' attention. You're competing from like as far as you can remember back, right? And so I kind of always grew up just without this the highly competitive spirit. But being from a small town on a farm, you know, my dad was a man of few words. And and when we went off to college, we packed up this old beater of a uh, Ford Escort. It was just like this cherry red. It was the only thing we could afford. And I remember shutting the door. My brother and I still talk about this. And we're like, all right, Dad, like, any words of advice? He goes, yeah, it's pretty simple. He goes, keep your effing mouth shut. Keep your head down. Never forget the world owes you nothing. And always make sure your shoes are shined. And I'm like, wow. I, you know, I'm 19 years old. I'm like, that's not very epiphanal. But as I got older, it turned me into this upside-down snob because I always felt the world was against me. And I'm like, no one's going to outwork me. No one's going to have greater sex, success than me. And I'm just going to have this maniacal focus on that, right? And that served me well, um, you know, until I started moving up in more senior leadership roles. And to answer your question, that kind of provides the context. There was a learned skill that I had to have uh, that was absent. And that was, um, it's like, how do you take authenticity, patience, empathy and vulnerability mm. and passion and and i know those things sound really really soft but there is so much power in that where if you authentically connect to your and by the way not just your people in your organization but people that are peers of yours um learning that skill creates a tremendous flywheel effect on what people are willing to do they're willing to get on the wall for you they're willing to understand the mission if you clearly articulate it. They understand the strategy you're trying to execute. And if, if you connect with people on that level, man, they will run through a wall for you. And, uh, and it's taken me years to, to kind of tap into that, right? And knowing when to tap into it. And um, it's almost like white collar, blue collar, you know, kind of have a white collar mentality, but also have a blue collar mentality. 
And if you do that, it's going to serve you well. That is a freaking great story. I love it. It is. I absolutely love that. Love it. And when he says identical twin, Johnny, <clears throat> it's identical. I've never seen his brother. These I'll birds, these birds look exactly something. alike. Still, it's unbelievable. Yeah. Unbelievable. Now, what do you think you had to learn about other people or people that you, you were managing? Is there something that you had to learn there? Like, um, was it to, to motivate them to, you know, what, to lead them, to develop them, to coach them? Was it, what did you have to learn about other people? Yeah, look, I, I uh, you don't get a lot of choices every day you get up, right? Just it's human nature. You get really one choice, and that's like your attitude. So you, you know, that's about the only thing when your feet hit the floor at 5 a.m., 6 a.m. before you go out for a run or a bike ride or whatever you do to get exercise, you you make a conscious choice around your attitude. Um, I always tried to wake up with a more optimistic view and you know, to tell you things that I've learned and I'll get to the coaching and developing, but I, I think in general, most people have an infectious desire to learn, right? And this is what Kaplan just talked about, right? I think most people wake up, they want to be led. They want to connect to something bigger than themselves, right? They want to be proud of the work that they do and they want to understand how it matters. Um, and they're looking to be led coached and, and, and developed. And so, um, you know, that at a kind of a basic level is, you know, what I've learned about people. And and I do think there is a lot around just the tactical understanding of what motivates somebody. It's back to the example I gave of the individual that was an engineer that ended up being the top rep in the company a couple of years in a row. When you start to learn what's really going to motivate, I mean, it's not a bad thing if someone says, I'm motivated by money. I actually like those people, but everyone's different. Everybody's a unicorn. And, um, you know, it's kind of like children. If you have children, you're going to love them the same, but you're going to raise them to what was put between the ears and not what was left out. And it's the same thing when you're leading, you know, a, a sales organization or a field, you know, organization or go to market organization. Like it's understanding, you know, what are the pawns on the chessboard? How am I going to be strategic about how I'm going to get the most out of them? And then make sure that they feel like they're connected to kind of to the Patriot comment you made, John. Like, I want to be. Yeah in the organization i'd love for them to be mercenaries when they're trying to close a deal but like being patriots he connects <laughs> <back> to the company <laughs> yeah yeah man i love what you said about um um I, I love what you said about the responsibility of that i think it's really it's really extremely powerful there's a there's a concept called that i like i call it the wana factor and I see leaders that have the wanna factor. And what I mean by that is when I look into an organization, I can see people that wanna do stuff. They don't, they're not doing it because they have to. They're not doing it from compliance. They're doing it from conviction. And great leaders, they they exude that 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 wanna factor. And I I'm I'm reminded, Johnny, when you oh, it wasn't you who sent me over to Germany, but when I first got over there, um, I didn't really know anybody, so I had no wanna factor. And it was at the end of the quarter, and you know, I'm in another country, so you're dealing with the US. And I come out, it was the loneliest feeling I've ever had as a leader. It was the last day of the quarter, and I came out of my office in Frankfurt, Germany, and I almost broke my leg on a there were no lights on. I'm trying to get the forecast together, I'm trying to get it squared away, and there's there were no lights on and I, it was the most loneliest feeling that I ever had. And then fast forward that a little bit, which is pretty cool is 
you know, same scenario, end of the quarter, and I'm getting calls from other leaders that I'm leading and they're saying, what do you need? And that for me was a, was an epiphany. It's like, are people, do you have the wanna factor? Are people doing things because out of compliance or are they doing things out of conviction? And I I really think, Carl and John, the things that you guys have been talking about really are summed up well on that. Yeah. Yeah. Really good, Johnny. Really good. Well, it's, you know, like Carl said, I think people, we all want an opportunity. And we all want to be part of something that's much bigger than ourselves. So if you hire the right people and you are coaching them and training them and developing them and leading them in the right way, they're going to stay with you because they feel like you're giving them the opportunity to stand on a platform of opportunity in which it's going to grow. And where else are you going to find that? If if you have a leader that's allowing you to do that, you're not going to find that in many other places. No, you don't. Yeah. So, Carl, now your perspective as, as a three-time CRO, what's changed about your perspective on the sales process? Is there anything that you now look at and say, wow, that step or that stage or that element of the sales process is so much more critical than I ever really thought now that I've had the perspective of a three-time, you know, CRO? Yeah, no, it's uh, the uh, the last three of these I've done, I've had to uh, redefine the sales process, right? Um you know, there's a reason the job's open, but you know, it's it's some basic fundamentals, right? It's got to be connected to the customer buying journey, right? That's a that's a no-brainer. But if I you know, if I break down a sales process, here here's here's what I've learned. Everyone in the field organization wants to focus on the bottom of the funnel. You know, late stage deals, we're getting close to the win. And trying to pull people out of that, it's like, look, it's back to like you, you got to understand, like, and you can show them the math. Hey, we're only going to be so good at in-quarter execution, right? And so you have to start to shift the mindset up into the earlier stages of the sales cycle. And, and even further beyond before it's a qualified sales opportunity when you're when you're paired up with the CMO. But if I think about once you're, you're in a qualified sales opportunity, the, the biggest, and I've gotten my head wrapped around this, and I got tremendous conviction around it and belief, uh, early, early stage when you're doing effective discovery or your first call, that defines everything else that's going to happen. It's it's the moment when that prospect experiences your brand for the first time as a company. It's the time that they experience the sales team. Are, are they credible? Do they have the domain expertise? Uh, and then the preparation that goes into that is where you got to, I put most of my effort, which is uh, we got to, before we go do a call, like, let's know what are the 20 effective discovery questions that we're going to ask that uncovers the pain where we can set trap setting questions and start to lead the witness early in the sales cycle. Um, and I don't think you can concentrate on that enough. I mean, we do my last three roles. I mean, we focus on that every quarter doing role plays. We got and we get informed by the customer, you know, the, the competitive intelligence group. We've got win loss review. Like, so we're always focusing on how am I going to be much more effective at discovery? Because what you do there 
when you start to get in the middle of the funnel and you set the decision criteria, if you haven't done the proper work on the front end, you, you're going to be a me too sometimes, right? Yeah. So, yeah. If you don't do proper discovery, it makes it really hard to build a, a business case that can show true quantifiable value. And right. it's almost impossible to find a, a champion. That's where people end up with coaches. They rush through discovery and scoping and doing demos and talking about features and functions, but they don't slow down and do all the work in, in the discovery process to set the tone for the rest of the sales process. Yeah. I agree with you 100%. I think one of the things that Carl said that um, kind of gets blown over sometimes is, you know, you said it starts with a great understanding of the buyer journey. And I just want to tag onto that a little bit. Like sometimes I look at sales processes and I can't tell where the customer is, where am I, where am I in the relation to the customer? And even like in exit criteria, you know, I think the greatest companies that do this are the ones that, 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 you know, map it all the way down to like CVOs or, you know, customer verifiable outcomes. It's like, okay, what is the customer doing? What does the customer need to be doing for us to move or exit uh, a, a stage? So I just wanted to highlight that that you said that in the beginning, and I think it's big. I don't think everybody does that. And I think there's a lot of sales processes out there that are just, they're inside out, not outside in. Oh, without a doubt, right? Entrance and exit criteria, you know, well, I mean, you see it all the time. Reps trying to move deals faster to the funnel, and you got to take, you know, you get on these opportunity reviews. It's like, well, hang on, man, let's just back up for a second. We were at stage two, and like, here's the outcomes that we want to see from the customer. We haven't met with the EB yet. Like we, like we're not. We let's go back and break this down. But if you really think about it, I mean, the if a CRO has done his job on having having a, a, a enterprise class sales process, you are more efficient in how you marshal the resources in the company. You've got the right content and the right assets at the right point in time at the stage that you're at. And if you get it right, you start to see win rates go up, your ASP starts to grow, you become a heck of a lot more predictable. Like the worst thing for a, for a CRO is not having predictability, right? Mm -hmm. it's, you, you can have a miss, but like if you're off by five, more than 5% either way, like that's not good, right? And particularly when you're a public company. Um, but that's for me was, is where it starts. It's, um, I mean, early in my career, it's like, ah, it's just more process. We'll go through the motions. But then you start to get people geared around and they start to understand how all this stuff is, you know, interconnected and threaded together. Uh, and then they, 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 they start jamming on it. So, yeah. And to your point, they not only have all the really good open ended discovery questions, understanding the use case and the persona, but, they also go in with a compelling viewpoint on the customer. They don't just still go in cold. You know, they they've done enough homework that they come in with a viewpoint on this is this is where I really think I can help your company and here's why because of the homework that I did. What I like about that is Versace is now already very needy. The customer can tell you why you're wrong. That's okay because now you're getting, you know, real hard feedback, quantifiable feedback right away. And I think that's that's really, really powerful. But yeah, they always go sideways in the discovery process, Carl. I agree with you. It's um, and it's hard, right? I get it. Yeah. When let's talk a little about scaling. Got a little bit of time left. We kind of brushed a little bit over on on sales process, even though I wanted to go a little bit deeper on that. But I think you 
really made your point on that one, which I agree with you 100%. Now, when you're trying to scale a sales force, what are the top lessons you think you learned about trying to scale the sales force? Well, I mean, look, think about scale, right? Obviously, we talked about skills. Um, you got to be looking at routes to market, you know, because as you scale, you're, you, like there's no money tree behind the boardroom where, you know, there's just limitless dollars, right? And so you've got to, there's a balance between growing at the expectation, but then for every unit of margin or revenue, are you becoming more efficient at how you're, how you're scaling the business? And, and that's like diversified routes to the market. Are you going to do an inside outside model? Are you going to hunter farm? All those things. But for me, scaling is really, it's you know, do, do you have a sales capacity plan, right? Do you, and, and, and I'm not talking about like, you know, we're getting ready to come into a new year. We already know the sales capacity plan. We know what we're hiring to, but the most effective CROs, um, most every SaaS company is going to have a three, four, five-year plan, right? They're going to have a target operating model. They're going to look at it in three, four, five years. But how do you go three, four years out and you've built the mental model of how, if I backed up from that, like, let's, you know, I'll make this up. We're going to be $750 million in recurring revenue in three years. Fantastic. How do you back up from there and then take all of those things around? All right, well, what type of skills do I need? How many do I have? How am I going to account for attrition in the sales capacity model? How, how am I going to uh, drive higher productivity, be more you know efficient on the margin side? And all that comes together where, because um, the last thing you want to do is get behind your hiring plan, right? You know, that's the, that's the um, you know, they say the average life of a CRO is 19 months. All the last three roles I walked into, that was the problem. You couldn't, they could you couldn't, they didn't have the plan to know hey, look, it's okay to staff ahead of growth, but we got to be purposeful on that, but have the plan hired to it, hold the leadership accountable to it. Uh, and that's how I think about scaling it is it, there's a lot of things in it, but your sales capacity plan and your average, average productivity per head uh, is, is probably the, the biggest driver in that. Well, and where it all aggregates is up to your level. Nobody else really pays the price as much as a CRO for getting behind in the recruiting plan. Yeah. So if you think about it in simple terms, let's say that your productivity per rep is 1.2 million. So it's 100,000 a month. So you go around the room when you miss a quarter and you you ask each one of the first line managers, well, how late were you on recruiting? Oh, I, you know, I was only a month and a half or I was only a month. I was only two months. Okay, but when you aggregate that all up to the CRO and there's 50 regions, and they were all behind one month, 50 times 100,000. How does the CRO possibly make that up? You can't make it up. So that's why you really can never get behind. You got to always try to be ahead, right? And the big killer is also, as you talked about earlier in this podcast, attrition is the real killer because now to your point, it's six months to find somebody. Productivity ramp time could be nine months. And by the time they're productive, you know, it's next year sometime. So- that's the killer. That's what takes a lot of CROs out of their job. And I'm always amazed. Sorry to just hop up on the, on the, uh, what is that? Soapbox. Soapbox. But I'm always amazed at how some, so many CROs just turn the recruiting over to HR and say, here, you do it. Man, you just put your life on your career on the line. You know, why are they going to stay ahead of the game? Why? What's their motivation? Right. So. 
Here's a quick fix to this. I learned this probably four or five years ago because uh, we were in a, I was in a company. We were in a high growth mode, and we were going to have to hire like thirty reps. You know, that next year, I started, and then we were on a calendar. or started in the summer, and every two weeks, I had a call, first line leaders and up, and we went through all the open recs, and you get to end the job. But it's you know sometimes as a CRO, you're having to work multiple levels down in the business, and you you know a lot of them will look at it and go, I shouldn't have to do that. I should have effective leaders. No, nah, it's human behavior, man. These guys like trust but verify everything. But when you start to get ahead of it, it's amazing what interests my boss inspires me. You start putting hydraulic pressure on something and showing that, hey, I'm I'm looking at the metrics and I'm looking at the bit like it's amazing how much people, you know, they get in line. They're like, okay, this is this must be really important. And then they go through that one time and then they make the connection. It's like, hey, look, you learned something new. Let's not do that again. So Right. Yeah. Once they know you're measuring it, they're on top of it. Yeah. And I think the big killer is you already talked about it earlier in the podcast is the um, if you don't have a good success profile, people say you've got to go hire 30 reps. I mean, it should be very clear what those reps need. What are they going to be doing? How are we going to measure them? Um, what does success look like in action is what I ask people. It's like, okay, this is a this is a success characteristic or whatever. Okay, I say, so how do you measure that? And what does it look like in action? Because it's got to show up in the interview process. And when companies are scaling and they, you know, that that this is a crude analogy, sorry, but they say, you know, bad breath is better than no breath. You know, I'm going to get somebody in the role because I'm going to get my butt kicked. They're going to ask me two weeks later if I've, you know, got somebody in the role or not. That's the killer to scale. My opinion is bad hiring because the hiring floodgates are open and, and, you know, not being cognizant of what that success profile is. It's the kiss of death. Yeah. Sometimes it's uh, you can go, go slower to go faster. Right. Yeah. Uh, Even in a deal, right. When you're executing deals, sometimes if you, if you're skipping steps, you know, you got to pull the range back. So. Well, I think it's what you also said very early in the podcast, Carl, that, you know, it's it's really building PG, not just for the accounts you want to go after, but for the people you want to go after. Because just because you have a bunch of openings doesn't mean a bunch of A players just happen to be available, right? Yeah. So it's pipeline generation for all your managers in order to hit those goals and to actually stay ahead of those goals. Have people where you can hire them now with January 1 or February 1 starts, right? That's when you know you really got have a machine is when mm -hmm. you already have the people with the offer letters in place and they start a couple months from now. So the, the minute the opening happens, they're in their day one, right? That's that's when you have a machine. And Johnny, Carl called it, I loved it. We kind of breezed over it. He called it the, you know, recruiting the not in play players. Mm -hmm. We're not, you know, when you're under pressure like that on scale, you're, you're, you wind up meeting with a lot of people that are looking for a job and, you know, the best leaders I've seen are doing what you guys are talking about and making sure they have a list of not in play players. And uh, those are the greatest. Those are the greatest friend to a CRO that I uh, that I could imagine from a people perspective. Paul Cross. It's wonderful to see you again. I know, man, it's uh, been too long. Good to see two friendly faces. Love the podcast. Uh, glad I was uh uh, it's an honor to to join you guys. And hopefully, this is going to be something that the listeners learn from. But uh, great to see you. Keep doing good work. Yeah, you too, Thanks, buddy. Tom. Keep crushing it. it.
There are a lot of really good lessons in here. Thanks for uh, really opening up about you and your experiences, because I think there's a lot of really golden nuggets in here that people are going to cherish. So That's thanks, great. Carl, and best of, best of luck to you. Yep, and thanks, thanks to everyone for listening to another episode of the Revenue Builders Podcast. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Be sure to check us out at forcemanagement.com.